about subjective well-being and cost-effectiveness analysis in mental health. By London Gal. Hello everyone. I was first sucked into this forum when I was directed to a post I might find interesting. It was about a research organization with EA endorsement that was straying into my area of work, mental health. I'm a UK doctor specializing in psychiatry, with some research experience. To be honest, I was baffled and a little frustrated by how far this organization strayed from what I would expect from mental health research. Hence the, perhaps overly, technical diatribe I launched into on a website I hadn't visited before, about an organization I hadn't heard of prior. However, that's not usually my style, and once I took a step back from my knee-jerk reaction, I wanted to understand how people with the same goals could arrive at completely different conclusions. It's led me to do a lot of reading, and I wanted to see if I could try on a makeshift EA hat, with most of my philosophy knowledge gained from the good place, no economics experience, and see where it went. What I wanted to understand. 1. Where has the interest in well-being arisen from, and what does it mean? 2. What are subjective well-being, SWB, measures, and are they useful? 3. Are we at a point of putting monetary value on SWB, for example like QALYs? For the sake of cost-effectiveness analysis, CEA? 4. When people are in this space talking about mental health, are we talking the same language? 5. Why are RCTs the best evidence for subjective well-being? 6. What would I come up with from my perspective of working within mental health for a way of comparing different interventions based on their intended effects on well-being? A. Spillover effects B. Catastrophic multipliers. 7. How does my guess stack up against existing research into well-being? 8. How could my framework be helpful in practice? 9. What would I be suggesting as research areas for maximal gains in well-being from my biased perspective? I'm aware this might be well-trodden ground in EA, which would make me embarrassingly late to the party, and consequently a complete bore. To lay my cards firmly on the table, I did approach these questions from the perspective that mental health is desperately underfunded. I spend a lot of time with patients who are severely affected by mental illness and therefore I'm biased towards seeing well-being as an opportunity to rebalance this scale and acknowledge the impact mental illnesses have on people. I also feel the term mental health is used in a way which is often confusing and occasionally unhelpful or stigmatizing. This is not meant as an attempt to further an argument against any person or organization. It will also not be high in tech speak as this was the first lesson I learned very quickly on my journey. While jargon is a useful shorthand for talking with people in the same field, as an outsider it is exhausting. This post does not reflect the attitudes or opinions of anyone but me. This is my personal quest for common ground and understanding, not a representation of UK psychiatry. I am speaking in an entirely personal capacity and, accordingly, I'm assuming I've gotten a lot of it completely wrong. To make this less self-indulgent, I've arranged this post to follow that question-and-answer format. For the sake of transparency, this was how this work came to be. I started with a long piece of writing about my concerns with assumptions made about mental health interventions in low- or middle-income country, LMIC, settings. I then did a quick Google on the Welby and wrote a lot about the idea of asking people to rate their satisfaction with life, on a scale from 0 to 10 which was essentially just entirely critical. I subsequently wrote out my concept of well-being as a framework, and my recommendations for high-gain areas for well-being-directed funding. Then I realized this was arrogant and so spent a couple of days doing a non-scientific review of the current subjective well-being literature. After several further drafts, this behemoth was born. 
For readability is skippability. IVE cut out some of my tangents, left others in for comment, number 4, number 5, and this piece will go through my arguments for an evaluative framework as a way of collating and synthesizing, subjective, well-being research until we have more robust data, number 6, number 8. It will also cover my quick literature review, number 7. To be clear, this is not a scientific method which should be given any weight, I was bored over a weekend and so this was the best I could do, it's not my day job. I am completely open to other opinions and comments. It's almost certain that I've missed some key information from my speedrun through EA and well-being research, so it will not offend me to hear this is the case. Heading. Where has the interest in well-being arisen from, and what does it mean? Well-being, as a construct, seems to refer to a state of thriving vs surviving, in a nutshell. From some of the psychology or philosophy papers I skim through, it seems there is relative agreement that it's complex and people might judge their well-being in different ways. Evaluative well-being, how satisfied we are in life, how do we rate the quality of our lives? Hedonistic well-being, do we have more positive feelings in life rather than negative ones? Eudaimonic well-being, do we have a sense of purpose in life, can we derive meaning from life? That's the end of that list. While it might be relatively easy to gauge some, hedonistic, aspects of well-being for example how do people feel on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of their emotional or mental state, other questions are clearly more difficult to answer without some thought and maybe experiencing an existential crisis or two. There's an image here, described as PubMed search results for papers including subjective well-being in title or abstract a summary by date. PubMed search results for papers including subjective well-being in title or abstract a summary by date. From my quick literature review, the interest in well-being as a research area is a relatively recent phenomenon. There has been rapid growth in papers being published about subjective well-being from around 2020 onwards. I'd guess this is due to, one, the COVID-19 pandemic and lockdown restrictions making this a hugely important topic for public health officials and politicians, and, two, the recent interest in using well-being as an outcome when evaluating the effect of a broad range of policy decisions, which has subsequently driven interest in quantifying well-being for use in cost-impact analyses. Organizations like this one aim to bring well-being into the forefront of discussions for how governments, communities and organizations can improve people's lives. Spending a little time on their website somewhat illustrates that this is not exactly straightforward. There are lots of factors which contribute to overall well-being, and a huge number of ways this information can be collected. Heading. What are subjective well-being, SWB, measures, and are they useful? Subjective well-being measures are one way to capture the well-being impact from an intervention. You ask the people affected by the change to rate their well-being, using various tools and you can compare these scores to those provided before the intervention to evaluate the overall gain or loss. This, however, opens debate into which questions are important to ask to get an idea about well-being, this complex concept with lots of theories and components. It also favors putting this information into a numerical form so you can compare scores before and after an intervention, which is much easier than trying to quantify impact from answers to questions like, do you feel your life has more meaning? To capture information about national well-being in the UK, as part of growing interest in this area, a number of questions were added to national surveys, the ONS4. The 4 questions added. Overall, how satisfied are you with your life nowadays? 0 equals not at all satisfied, 10 equals completely satisfied, 
this question of life satisfaction sometimes crops up in researchers' ls. Overall, to what extent do you feel the things you do in your life are worthwhile? 0 equals not at all worthwhile, 10 equals completely worthwhile. Overall, how happy did you feel yesterday? 0 equals not at all happy, 10 equals completely happy. On a scale where 0 is not at all anxious and 10 is completely anxious, overall, how anxious did you feel yesterday? That's the end of that list. The last two questions can then be combined to give an idea of effect, mood, balance, which I gather is important from some of the psychology research. I read which argued that questions about effect shouldn't reduce it down to unipolar constructs, for example happy vs sad, as this is not reflective of how people judge their overall well-being. While a lot of interest has been devoted to using life satisfaction in UK policy as a singular measure of well-being for decision-making, I'm yet to be fully convinced of its value, more on this later. However, my personal thoughts aside, I'm not alone in thinking this isn't the best way of measuring well-being. My quick literature review, which returned 286 relevant papers, included 41 different scales to gather information on subjective well-being, SWB, with several other papers including bespoke questionnaires designed for particular studies, or interviews with people to gather non-numerical, qualitative, data. Many studies combine different tools to capture different aspects of subjective well-being. That is some tools are designed to just gather information on hedonistic well-being, or evaluative well-being, etc. To me, as well, there is an issue with using purely subjective data for well-being. Perhaps this is my psychiatry bias coming into play, but while we elicit subjective information from patients, either by directly asking them for example how they are feeling, or indirectly through assessment of their thoughts and views on themselves, this is balanced against our objective, that is external, evaluation as clinicians. Mental illnesses wreak havoc on our ability to think and perceive reality, either through distorting our perception of the world around us and ourselves, making us perceive our internal experiences as happening outside in the real world, for example hallucinations or delusions, or making our thoughts race, become disjointed, or slowed down. While it is important to not dismiss patients' subjective views, it's not always appropriate to take them out of context. As an example, a patient experiencing mania might feel subjectively on top of the world and destined for greatness. 10 tenths life satisfaction. They are, however, incredibly sick, their family is likely distraught, and they are at serious risk of harm if they don't receive treatment, even if this would correlate to a lowered life satisfaction rating. Similarly, for people who might struggle to understand questions asking for a complex abstract evaluation, it seems unfair to use standardized questioning to get an idea of their well-being. It's arguably even more important to be flexible to ensure the information you're gathering is useful and reflective of their experiences. All of this to say, I have a feeling that while SWB data are helpful in some contexts, it's important to use the information thoughtfully. Perhaps the huge number of SWB measures is reflective of this being a field in its infancy, still finding its feet, and there might be a future standardized and validated scale we can use to compare different interventions based on their well-being improvements. However, it's equally possible to me that the number of tools reflects the different aspects of well-being which are most important to different researchers, different communities, or different groups of people. The future of subjective well-being research might be development of further tools for specific settings or people, or increased use of interviews to generate qualitative data if researchers want more in-depth understanding of the people they want to help. At the very least, I think it's reasonable to say that at the moment, it would be unwise to compare different SWB measures when this doesn't appear to be validated as offering useful information. 
with well-being having a wide scope, and SWB measures still a growing area of research. It might be comparing apples and oranges to compare different SWB outcomes for different interventions. Heading. Are we at a point of putting monetary value on SWB, for example like QALYs, for the sake of cost-effectiveness analysis, CEA? For the purposes of policy decision-making, there is interest in converting well-being impacts to an equivalent monetary value, so it's possible to make a judgment on whether or not the intervention was worth the money, and allow for different interventions to be compared for example which intervention can provide the best return, in well-being, for the cost. This is an approach which is already used for other metrics for example the value of a quality-adjusted life year, QALY. The UK Treasury has been looking into whether SWB can be used in a similar way with the WellBe. This discussion paper suggests an approach which values one WellBe at around £13,000, the equivalent of a one-point change in life satisfaction per year, using the 0 to 10 scale. It also goes into some of the complexities in using life satisfaction in this manner especially converting this 0 to 10 scale of satisfaction in life to the 0 to 1 scale used in the QALY between death and living a year with no health problems. While you could argue the QALY is only capturing a few areas of well-being, and it's useful to have a broader perspective when wanting to measure how a change has helped people, it seems a bit tricky as a concept when considering settings where people are dying in significant numbers from preventable, treatable illnesses. It's worth keeping in mind that the countries considering using the Welby, UK and New Zealand, would not fit that category. And this was an interesting read about the intricacies of using life satisfaction in sayers in LMICs in terms of how you calculate the cost of a Welby for countries with different average LS, life expectancy and income, GDP. I haven't seen many arguments about estimating WELLBYs to direct funding or to compare different interventions. In general, it seems that the argument for WELLBYs is to collect SWB data before and after implementing a change, and use this to inform arguments about cost-effectiveness in terms of well-being, which in itself then requires careful work to covert the well-being to a monetary value based on the country you are working within. This is good for interventions which aren't just health-based where the QALY is not really capturing what you're trying to do. It seems collecting robust SWB data, especially as this is a new field and using well-being as one way to communicate the impact of an intervention is the recommended approach, rather than trying to use a cost per well-being metric to compare different interventions. I haven't seen much data to argue this is appropriate, and haven't found many papers reporting life satisfaction in a range of settings from similar style interventions to be able to support doing this, yet. While for policy decision-making this perhaps isn't a big deal, it clearly is a problem for people within EA who are interested in well-being as a way of measuring the most good that can be done across a range of challenges and settings. Heading. When people are in this space talking about mental health, are we talking the same language? This is just a quick note to avoid confusion. There are lots of discussions about mental health which have nothing to do with mental illness and it's important to avoid conflating the two to avoid misunderstandings. I suppose, to me, it's a bit like this. Generally speaking, smoking is bad for your health. It would be considered health promotion to encourage people to stop smoking and dissuade young people from picking up the habit. However I couldn't argue that not smoking or stopping smoking prevents lung cancer, emphysema, and heart disease. Smoking greatly elevates your risk of all three, but you can live a perfectly healthy life and be unlucky. Similarly, while there are lots of things I can argue are good or bad for one's mental health, that is a completely separate conversation from what is an effective treatment for a mental illness.
Generally, these mental health promotion interventions are based around considering health as holistic, mental, physical and cognitive that is healthy mind a healthy body a healthy brain, so exercise, eating well, etc. are generally good. Others are around avoiding stress for example workplaces offering flexible hours, mindfulness sessions, etc. You can make arguments about how mindfulness and exercise might promote mental health and well-being, but you'd have to show these are effective treatments for for example depression to make any argument they help people with a mental illness. Similarly, giving people without a diagnosed mental illness evidence-based treatments for mental illness to help their well-being would be odd. It's a bit like telling non-smokers with lung cancer to stop smoking to get better. I can see why mental illnesses have been used in the discussions I've seen on SWB, not only due to confusing terminology which uses mental health and mental well-being somewhat interchangeably, but also based on how hedonistic well-being, positive vs negative emotions, is measured and how this might be oversimplified that is suggesting treating depression promotes happiness, or treating anxiety disorders reduces anxiety. I'm strongly against this approach because, simply put, these are complex illnesses which are more than simple emotions. A few examples. PTSD is an anxiety disorder, but rarely manifests in constant worry, hypervigilance, intrusive thoughts, numbness, etc. Yes, someone with agoraphobia able to remain at home will not be living in terror day to day, but may be extremely disabled due to their illness, for a diagnosis of depression being low in mood is not even a requirement, etc. I do think mental illnesses have a massive impact on well-being, but not solely due to their effect on effect a mood balance. Heading. Why are RCTs the best evidence for subjective well-being? I think, for evaluative purposes, the concept of randomized controlled trials, RCTs, being the best evidence to answer a research question is flawed when considering the need for subjective well-being approaches. While, in the hierarchy of evidence, RCTs are better than other types of studies, it's important to clarify what best evidence means, rather than taking that at face value. Let's say I'm doing an RCT on how well psychoanalysis, intensive psychotherapy offered five times a week, improves depression in working-age adults. My interest is in proving psychoanalysis works in treating depression. I recruit 100 people with depression and offer 50 of them psychoanalysis, the other 50 I offer, sham, psychoanalysis, a placebo. Because I need them to stay on the trial to complete the study, I might offer them incentives, be really nice to them, or I'll work within a company that's happy for me to monopolize their time. Because I want to make sure it's the psychoanalysis that's having an effect on depression, I might exclude people that might complicate the picture, for example I might not want people already having therapy or people misusing substances, etc., for the safety of participants who have kindly volunteered, I might not include people really sick with depression as they need immediate care. I'll randomly assign people into treatment or control groups as this usually makes the groups roughly similar, and allows me to compare them fairly for example I wouldn't want the groups to be all men vs all women, etc. I'll also want to make sure, ideally, Nothing else happens over the trial period to change how depressed they are because I need to ensure any benefit is due to my intervention, and not some other reason, for example I can't have the company give a raise to a bunch of people in my treatment or control group. I'll collect lots of measures of depression at the end, and let's say it's worked, I make people 10x better. I can do a CEA on this to argue everyone in the UK should have this amazingly effective treatment. I'd have to allow for the fact we know people do better in a trial than in the real world because I've tried to stop them dropping out and chosen my participants carefully. 
I'll begrudgingly accept it's likely to be half as effective, people only get 5x better. But, even then, it's worth doing and I roll it out across the UK. It's a complete failure. It's not really that the treatment isn't as effective, although I find that too. The problem is I've spent a bunch of money on training and providing accessible psychoanalysis but no one is attending. Because, obviously, most people cannot attend therapy that frequently with work commitments, or won't pay a babysitter to allow them to come. Maybe they prefer the free once-weekly therapy available in the UK, even if it is a bit less effective than psychoanalysis. The therapists I've quickly trained to do this work are burning out, and suddenly people are getting worse because their therapist has dropped them. The people that are attending are not very depressed, likely because their illness and their lives are allowing them to come five times a week for therapy, and so my treatment effects become less impressive because there is only so much you can make someone with mild depression less depressed, vs the gains in my RCT when people had moderate severe depression. In this example, the RCT is still good evidence for psychoanalysis being an effective treatment for depression, that is it shows the intervention works. The CEA similarly might have been well-reasoned. People are just messy and, outside of a ridiculous example like this, it's hard to predict how the treatment works in the real world, that is the application. While in a RCT we need to reduce the amount of noise to be sure any effect is due to our intervention. If a treatment is highly impractical or unacceptable, it's not just the effect will be less good, it might not be effective at all. This is particularly relevant in settings where it's harder to predict all the unintended consequences, positive or negative, of an intervention. If well-being is an argument for subjectivity vs objectivity obtained from RCTs, you need as much noise as possible. It weights qualitative evidence and observational studies much more highly. You have to accept there is a huge amount that is unknown in thinking about adapting a trial to the real world of another country, and simply reducing the likely treatment effect by an arbitrary number is an unhelpful approach without this work. In other words, collecting real-world feedback on the intervention from the people most affected by it is helpful to understand their perspective on, that most good, which can be done in their community. How much subjective well-being should be understood alongside other metrics is veering into dangerous philosophical territory for me for example if an intervention improves mortality in a country, but it negatively affects everyone's well-being, is it still doing good, or how much should that downgrade estimates of goodness? Alternatively, is it right at all for anyone else to say what doing good is in another community? Perhaps well-being allows for a more complex construct of good, which reflects the philosophy of those affected rather than risk imposing an external set of values. There is the additional issue that RCTs are expensive to run, and therefore present a barrier for researchers in LMIC settings to produce this best evidence, which seems like an issue when aiming to reduce assumptions in sayers. To me, personally, there seems to be an underrecognition of the problems in relying on externally funded RCTs to produce this evidence. Firstly, it almost inevitably involves applying assumptions to drastically different cultures. In terms of mental health, this is particularly problematic given how culturally bound mental illnesses are in terms of experience, understanding, and expressions of distress, as well as approaches to treatment. In some cultures, physical and spiritual symptoms are much more common than our more psychological formulations of difficulties, and psychotherapy is not always acceptable or even desirable as a treatment. Secondly, it appears to ignore the power dynamics at play when a wealthy outsider pitches up in a remote community to conduct research. As another detour from reality, let's imagine I don't live in London. I live in a tiny village and I'm hit by a devastating flood. 
I'm sleeping on a camp bed in the local community center, I.V.E. lost everything and I'm in a very dire situation. Suddenly, Elon Musk arrives in a helicopter and hands me a designer raincoat, worth 200 pounds. His assistant asks me a few weeks later if that was helpful and if I'm glad I have the raincoat. I would probably answer yes, because by then I've found some use for it, and I don't want to upset the team handing out expensive raincoats. I might even say it's the best thing ever because I'm hoping he'll come back and offer me something else. However, if he had asked me initially if I wanted £200 or the raincoat, of course I would take the money, and I would find it slightly irritating if he then pulled a face and told me the weather forecast for next week, to suggest I would be better off taking the raincoat. To return to reality once more, I can see the argument for RCTs for mental health interventions in LMICs. It's worth seeing if treatments are similarly effective in these settings when the bulk of evidence is otherwise derived from non-LMICs. It might allow for some gauge of cultural acceptability if provided in a non-coercive manner, and would also allow researchers to collect SWB data as one of the outcome measures to argue for cost-effectiveness. However, this is not the only way of gathering this information, and to define the best evidence, this is not a simple matter of hierarchy. Heading. What would I come up with from my perspective of working within mental health for a way of comparing different interventions based on their intended effects on well-being? How satisfied are you with your life, on a scale from 0 to 10? As I'm talking to some EA folks, my prediction is there's a mix of people who had a gut response to that question including a complete reluctance to answer at all, those who puzzled over that initial response, those consumed with guilt for any instinctive rating deemed too low given an acute awareness of others' suffering, and those who suppressed any immediate response, and set in motion an internal moral philosophy machine to answer the broader question of what is satisfaction, how do we self-evaluate? Now I've spent some time on this forum, I give you 80% odds every EA reading fits at least one category with the known variable giving a confidence estimate highly increases the chance of someone wanting to object to prove me wrong, and now struggling with the trap I've laid which has created a scenario, regardless of outcome, where I'm 100% right, and downvalued my goodwill from EA with this joke by zero. 85. I suppose I'm trying to recreate real-world conditions for how people respond to that question with some mild impatience or irritation in the person asking that is as part of a survey, or lumped in other outcome measures in an RCT, or even being asked by a stranger. Perhaps a reliance on comparable, numerical metrics produces a certain absurdity. I'm trying to imagine having a conversation with someone I care about to ascertain their well-being, and following that up with, yeah, sure, but on a scale from 0 to 10? Or possibly, from my experience in medicine, the face a patient makes if they are rolling around, screaming in agony and someone asks for a pain rating out of 10. We accept a range of responses to mean 10, but a pain scale is at least useful in other contexts. My gut response to the same question about life satisfaction, I don't know, about 7 eighths. Seems to put me in good company amongst survey respondents in the UK where average life satisfaction is 7.54, but does that mean we have comparable well-being? Is it just the British approach to any similar question, how am I? Good. Thanks. I struggle to imagine what the difference between a 7 or 8 would be, and if I answered the same question next year with no changes in my well-being, it might therefore be plus or minus 1 based on a coin flip. While I can remember a 10, I'm struggling to know how I'd keep at a 10 on repeated measures to determine well-being, or whether that is even desirable to me that is if I took a pill that made me feel like that way constantly, what effect would that have on my life? 
Similarly, my growing devaluation of this question could easily provoke a f asterisk asterisk ku response if I was asked uncaffeinated. Apparently two pounds spent in buying me a coffee before asking next year nets a good five points, I am cheap at 40 pence a well be. Obviously, responses are more valuable when taken across a sample or population, but are they? It seems taking averages loses meaning too. It doesn't really matter. As a full rollout of life satisfaction scores for the purposes of WELLBYs is under consideration, so I'll wait to see the value in the data collected to be proved wrong. However, my feeling is it's unlikely to produce helpful information alone, and if I was going to guess what makes up overall well-being, I might use the qualitative nature of my interactions with patients and qualitative research in general to identify key concepts. For the sake of comparison to QALYs etc., I would probably agree it's sensible to keep zero at death and use one as a year lived at baseline average well-being. I suppose the same way that being in peak physical fitness is a bonus for a QALY. Living an enlightened high well-being life is a bonus for my scale. Heading. The key concepts. Health, illness will reduce well-being from your normal baseline, both in terms of the acute illness and the years spent with this illness that prevents return to baseline. Here's a list of bullet points. Where the duration of untreated illness can affect prognosis, the immediate impact should be weighted much more severely than considered over the long term for example duration of untreated psychosis is a negative prognostic factor in predicting recovery in schizophrenia. It is much more effective to reduce the duration of untreated psychosis, immediate, than treatment in the longer term to promote long-term well-being. Some illnesses produce highly unpleasant symptoms that are likely to affect someone's day-to-day -day enjoyment of life for example pain, fear, fatigue, etc. I don't think it's appropriate to relate this uniformly to severity for example through symptom measures. I would favor daily symptom burden, which will be affected by access to effective treatment. If treatments are broadly ineffective or not available to people, it allows different weighting here. To explain my reasoning, anxiety disorders, mild or moderate severe, appear exponential in disability-adjusted life years. Dally, weighting, a measure of impairment. Someone with agoraphobia may be housebound, significant loss of function, due to extreme fear of the outside world but provided they are able to avoid leaving home they will not be living in fear. In other anxiety disorders for example generalized anxiety disorder, it is not possible to escape the anxiety, and you can't use fast-acting anxiety relief treatments to mitigate this, even if it doesn't meet the same level of terror someone with agoraphobia might face if forced to leave the house. Someone constantly experiencing three-tenths pain daily despite pain relief might rate their overall well-being worse than someone experiencing 8 tenths pain once a week who can relieve this with their morphine prescription, despite being lower on the pain scale. In short, daily symptom burden equals how bad are the symptoms, how prevalent are they, and can you get any relief from them? In looking at ill health in general, it might be worth considering if certain illnesses have a compounding effect. That is if you get X illness, is this worse because you already had Y? or multimorbidity in mitigation to ensure problems aren't double-counted that is if two conditions result in loss of a person's left arm, these shouldn't be added together as you don't have two left arms. Overall, for well-being, it's understanding poor health as, one, having a mental or physical illness, with the expected effects on life expectancy as my scale uses zero as death, two, unpleasant daily symptom burden. That's the end of that list. Autonomy, the ability to maintain control and independence of one's body, self and make choices in life which reflect one's beliefs and values. 
Here's a list of bullet points. The disability weight used in the DALI gives some idea of the unpleasantness or undesirability of an illness. Impairment which seems useful as a measure of the impact of a new diagnosis. And it reflects broadly how people feel they will cope that is it should be a good measure of the short-term impact of an illness. And how relatively feared undesirable or distressing it is. However, the effect on well-being in the longer term has to allow for adaptation and deterioration, as well as recovery to baseline. Some conditions have a poor prognosis with further impairments and therefore a constant, subjective feeling of loss, for example progressive MS. Other people adapt to impairments with time and I feel it is wrong to imagine they cannot obtain high levels of well-being. Rather than saying someone with a disability will be X percent worse off over the course of their lives as a static measure, it instead puts the onus on doing what we can to promote their access to the same opportunities. It would therefore weight the impact of a disability worse in resource-poor settings where people are not provided means to adapt. Ideally this would be informed through qualitative feedback from people with the illnesses in question in different settings to understand. Short-term vs. long-term impact. Other examples I would imagine that drastically decrease autonomy might involve exposure to inescapable forms of violence and abuse, for example domestic violence, persecution, inability to exercise bodily autonomy, for example access to contraception. I suppose lack of autonomy would include other aspects of being able to freely make decisions. This is seen in different ways for example people feeling trapped on benefits or trapped in jobs due to economic insecurity being barred from education, or unable to afford access healthcare. It is also a consideration for people requiring hospitalization, particularly over the long term, institutionalization, or incarceration. That's the end of that list. Security, confidence in having basic needs met, food, water, shelter, care. Here's a list of bullet points. I would extend this to the benefit of having close confiding relationships if desired, an emotional or social sense of security. I would also imagine that childhood experiences of insecurity have ongoing effects in how people judge security throughout their lives, and leads to varying responses to real or perceived threats to that security. As an example, it's thought that adverse childhood experiences are common in the etiology of all mental illnesses, but it's thought that neglect of a child's physical or emotional needs, for example if parents are not able to respond appropriately due to mental illness, substance misuse, or exposure to violence, can lead to problems throughout adolescence and adulthood in personality difficulties and disorders. That's the end of that list. Time direction, having the ability to spend time in ways people value or find meaningful. Here's a list of bullet points. People are not just living to work, or so overburdened with responsibility they cannot utilize time for themselves how they wish for example social activities, interests, and they have the freedom to make trade-offs to reflect their priorities. Similarly, people being able to feel connected to a cause or community greater than themselves is important for people to find a deeper meaning in life and have a sense of purpose and fulfillment. That's the end of that list. Equality of justice, belief we are in control of our destinies and society rewards efforts and skills fairly. Here's a list of bullet points. I think, as social creatures, we judge ourselves and our position in life compared to others and are therefore sensitive to unfairness. I think this plays out repeatedly in multiple ways across society, and generally inequality will act to decrease well-being for example, I imagine in communities with high economic inequality or prevalent discrimination unequal opportunity, this will decrease life satisfaction. While I think the impact is greater in the disadvantaged group, it can also reduce well-being in the advantaged group, 
because by profiting from an unjust society, there can be concern one's circumstances can be lost if not based on factors within your control, or your achievements are not reflections of your abilities for example if I slept with my boss for a promotion, those around me will feel this was unfair, I didn't get this opportunity a salary bump through hard work or aptitude at my job. And will likely lead to a strong decrease in job satisfaction amongst my colleagues. Why bother trying when promotions are handed out like this? On the other hand, while I benefited from the promotion, I would question if I could have gotten it on my own merits, worry about my competency and be very sensitive to mistakes or criticism. I might worry I could lose my job if I get a new boss and it's discovered I'm actually incompetent. That's the end of that list. How this feeds into a 0 to 1 scale. I'd suggest a matrix approach is helpful, even if SWB data aren't available to argue for well-being as a whole, either because it doesn't exist yet, or uses tools other than the supposed common currency of life satisfaction, or uses qualitative information. This will allow what is known from existing research to be incorporated in these judgments, while avoiding trying to combine SWB measures together, and produce an overall value of well-being impact. Taking the above. I feel this could accurately reflect the benefits to society from broader interventions other than health alongside health-focused interventions. For interest's sake, I tried thinking of mental illnesses along these lines. From most to least impact on well-being, I'd probably put it in this order, non-exhaustive list. Schizophrenia a schizoaffective disorder, with further higher rating in first episode psychosis greater than bipolar disorder type 1 a severe depression with psychosis greater than severe personality disorder, severe depression greater than OCD a PTSD a eating disorders greater than moderate to severe generalized anxiety disorder, moderate depression a bipolar type 2 agoraphobia a social phobia greater than mild depression, mild to moderate generalized anxiety. The DALI disability waiting, limited list a different language. Acute schizophrenia greater than severe depressive disorder greater than residual schizophrenia greater than severe anxiety, disorder greater than bipolar disorder, manic episode, that is type 1 greater than moderate depression greater than anorexia, bulimia greater than mild depression greater than moderate anxiety greater than residual bipolar disorder greater than mild anxiety. So, it doesn't seem to be just arriving at the same answer in a more complicated way. However, there are a couple more things I would add if understanding the effects of mental illness on well-being. Heading. Spillover effects. I've seen the term emotional contagion used now and then when talking about household spillover that is how are other members of the household impacted by an illness or benefit from this person receiving an intervention. I think it's more helpful to take a systems approach to understand that spillover effects on well-being, which could similarly be modeled on the same framework. It reflects, then, the role that someone fulfills in their household and therefore the impact on the household if they become ill that is are they the main breadwinner? Do they have caring responsibilities? Do they have dependent children? Is there a social safety net if they are unable to work or fulfill their usual duties in the home? Is someone else having to pick up extra hours to pay rent or reduce their hours to stay home and provide care? Can they no longer enjoy life or engage in activities because their role in the home has changed? Again, based on my brief comment above, we have to weight heavily impacts on children, particularly in their early years, where adversity will have enduring effects on their well-being throughout their lives. Heading. A catastrophic effect multiplier. Despair. While slightly cautious of mentioning this topic in a broader discussion of mental health, this bit will be talking about suicide and physician-assisted suicide, as well as electing not to pursue life-prolonging treatments. I think it is important in discussions of subjective well-being. 
while it's difficult to imagine what types of people have maximal well-being, with zero being death, on my proposed well-being scale, it seems there are many people who do judge their lives as equivocal or worse than death when contemplating or attempting a completing suicide. I don't think that should then produce negative ratings below zero on my proposed zero to one scale, but if an illness or societal adversity predictably increases rates of suicide, the overall effect on well-being considered in these situations should have a catastrophic multiplier applied to reflect this causes, a number of people to make negative evaluations, that is to bring the well-being measure closer to zero. I think this is more helpful than including suicide in estimates of premature mortality of various illnesses, where otherwise, mental illness is rarely questioned as an attributing factor compared to others, or untreated undiagnosed, mental illness is speculated upon when no diagnosis exists, either colloquially or through these data being sought in the first place. I think it is harmful to perpetuate either this understanding of suicide, or mental illness. Aside from all the research demonstrating suicide is not predictable in anyone or preventable by improving access to mental health services or treatments, aside from lithium, interestingly, this does appear to prevent suicide, seemingly on an ecological scale. It also seems to fail on face validity alone in countries that permit euthanasia, where psychiatric illnesses impacting judgment are screened for in referrals. If wishing to end your life was uniformly symptomatic of a mental health problem, and assuming this is not eugenics in action, there would be no demand or uptake of these services. Instead, I think suicide is best understood through the concept of current subjective well-being plus prediction of future subjective well-being, ex-belief we can change our future, that is current SWB plus hope versus despair. My interpretation of well-being already incorporates viewing not only one's current state but a view of one's future, that is health, autonomy, equality, but it's important to recognize that these concepts should be defined separately here for the purposes of applying despair as a multiplier. If someone's current well-being is critically low, they view their future as continued, worsening suffering and have the belief this cannot be changed, this appears to correlate to how people make decisions to end their lives. Conversely, it might allow some understanding for how people persevere even in incredible adversity, they maintain hope things can improve and that this can be brought about by their actions, or perhaps are more resilient to factors compromising well-being or naturally optimistic in predicting, valuing the positive impact of future events. Despair therefore can be an effect multiplier in known conditions which increase risk of suicide, as well as conditions that could plausibly result in critically low well-being, negative evaluations of the future, or lack of control over the future, when this information is not clear. For example in thinking about health, these evaluations could arise from illnesses that produce a large negative impact on well-being, and or have a deteriorating prognosis which leads to a particularly grim view of the future, for which there is no treatment palliation or support to induce any hope things can improve. I prefer this as a catastrophizing modifier on the effect of illnesses, societal adversity rather than incorporating it into the framework as another concept because I don't believe it arises independently, and I think it is harmful to categorize people seeking physician-assisted suicide or not agreeing to life-prolonging treatments as lacking well-being. To do so would go against my view on death and dying. Thinking about someone approaching the natural end of their life, there is nothing that can be done to change this, and predictions of the future become increasingly certain. It would be deeply wrong to characterize this as despair, or suggest people with life-limiting illnesses therefore cannot rate their lives with high satisfaction or experience high well-being. I'd argue that when the otherwise prospective approach to self-evaluations of well-being is no longer appropriate, this reverses to a retrospective view, 
where we evaluate our satisfaction based more on our current subjective well-being, and take on an increasingly retrospective view on what we have done, our impact on the world, and take comfort in what we are leaving behind. Heading. How does my guess stack up against existing research into well-being? I searched PubMed for original studies looking at predictors of subjective well-being. I searched for subjective plus well-being which yielded 699 results. I did an abstract-only review that is looked only at the summaries of papers written by the authors for studies which looked at a variable a factor and how this related to SWB. I couldn't include papers which used SWB to explain a relationship between two other variables or those which produced conflicting results on different SWB measures for the purposes of what I was doing. This left me with 286 relevant abstracts in total. I picked out information on the country the research originated from, the SWB scores used, the factor the study looked at and if there were any important moderating, mediating factors the researchers found for example while variable X was associated with low well-being, we found lots of this effect could be accounted for by variable Y. I didn't pull out information about the size of the study or the effect size as this was an abstract-only review, and I can't make comments about how robust any of these studies were. Again, this is why abstract-only reviews are not a useful research tool, but it seemed like the least biased way of collecting information, and I only had a weekend. Heading. General findings. Firstly, I mentioned earlier on that this is a recent area of research interest. It's important to also mention that, therefore, it's influenced by early adopters of this work that is the countries that developed an interest in SWB measures, and so produced a lot of research from the get-go are overrepresented in the available research. As well-being is highly subjective and context-dependent, this should be kept in mind when understanding the direction of research and how we draw conclusions from what's currently available. Where the country information was available in the title or abstract, here is the number of studies by country. There's an image here, described as number of studies by country. For anyone who prefers a visual representation of the research share for single nation studies. There's an image here, described as number of studies by country. As well as this being one of the prettiest pie charts I've ever made, it demonstrates a few countries hold a lot of well-being research territory at present. In case anyone skipped me talking about this in an earlier section, in these 286 studies, I found 41 different SWB scales being used, and a number of studies using bespoke questionnaires or interviews collecting non-numerical, qualitative, data to describe subjective well-being. Lots of studies used more than one SWB measure. It's worth mentioning that many of these studies were focused on very specific groups for example rural to urban older adult migrants, or specific ages for example adolescents, or specific circumstances for example mothers of children less than 18 Y with autism spectrum disorder. How useful any of this information is taken out of that context is debatable, but I found it interesting to see what the researchers thought might be related to well-being, to judge my finger-in-the-air style guesswork that otherwise is based on a, trust me, bro, of my clinical experience. What also became clear to me from wading through these abstracts is that it's difficult to really tease out a causal relationship that is to say XYZ results in better or worse well-being. To give an example, there were a fair few studies which found that physical activity was related to greater SWB. Does this mean exercise improves well-being? It might also mean that people who have good well-being are more likely to engage in exercise. If it was just about activity, should we expect manual laborers, service industry workers, cleaners, 
etc. to therefore have higher well-being as they have active jobs? Or, is it that people who regularly exercise have a higher income or socioeconomic status, or just aren't sick and therefore able to exercise, and perhaps it's just that wealthy people with no health problems are likely to have high well-being, whilst also engaging in regular exercise? In simple terms, lots of variables can coincidentally relate to higher SWB, some might interact with other variables, that is have a greater impact on well-being as a system vs the sum of their parts and some are likely unhelpful taken out of context with other issues we know impact well-being. Heading. The Non-Scientific Literature Review. I took my proposed framework and saw what studies were out there to validate it. Some concepts I think could be debated into where they fit in the matrix. It's my best approximation but, as an example, low SES spans multiple domains in terms of autonomy, security, time allocation, and equality. Here is a summary of the 286 studies, with the number of studies which identify the same factor as worsening well-being, no, the number of studies showing conflicting results, no effect, no con, and any mitigating or moderating factors. There's an image here, described as image alt text. There's an image here, described as image alt text. There's an image here, described as image alt text. There's an image here, described as Image alt text. A number of studies identified relevant factors for considering spillover effects. There's an image here, described as image alt text. Of course, there was a large number of factors which didn't fit my matrix that appeared in research. There's an image here, described as image alt text. There's an image here, described as image alt text. So, for the sake of transparency, I did alter my matrix following this research in one domain. While I had included leisure time in my initial framework, I hadn't considered having time for purposeful or meaningful activity. For readability, I altered my guess in this regard, but this was a post-review edition. It was a blind spot, and I think it was based on my own biases that is as a doctor, I perhaps take it for granted I find my work meaningful. I know 80,000 hours may disagree but it doesn't change the way I perceive my work, how I derive value from my job, and generally think working in medicine, in psychiatry in particular, and in the NHS, reflects my personal values. It's easy to take for granted, but being able to spend my work hours in this way is perhaps a privilege others cannot enjoy. Perhaps less overt biases are coming into play, but finding the factors which didn't neatly fit my matrix, after correcting that oversight, did not lead me to doubt myself. I'm not arguing any of that work is invalid or irrelevant, but for the purposes of the matrix, I didn't feel bad for excluding them. Happy to be challenged, but here's, quickly, why. It seems plausible to me that due to innate genetic factors people have traits or overall, good well-being, genes which means they are naturally prone to rate their well-being higher. This, as well as other immutable characteristics, for example age, aren't changeable if considering well-being interventions. Other internal factors for example coping skills, emotional intelligence, I felt could be related to spillover effects from childhood experiences or childhood adult adversity, or similarly be innate. My personal bias is that problem-focused interventions to improve self-esteem and the like are less helpful than general measures to allow children opportunities and environments to thrive within. In terms of situational external factors, I felt many of these, natural disasters, stress, are unavoidable in normal life, and others, having children, getting married, probably shouldn't be mandated. 
While it's important to consider when people may require additional support, I think well-being should be incorporated in larger discussions about disaster of future preparedness that is it could be considered along the matrix, but shouldn't form part of it. In terms of the behavioral factors, I alluded to this above in considering if these are causative factors or not. The only exception is probably thinking about living standards, local environment, access to green space, pollution, etc., which are very much not people problems but societal problems and likely related to SES, income, etc. It's likely a limitation of my people-centered well-being matrix if this doesn't weight appropriately in other measures, leisure, equality, security that is adequate shelter, safe neighborhood, and ability to spend time in nature. That's the end of that list. Overall, I felt my matrix held up reasonably well as a way of categorizing existing SWB research, and my assumptions weren't too wild to be unsupported in literature. Heading. How could my framework be helpful in practice? To further expose my agenda. I do think mental illnesses have a huge impact on well-being, and historical measures of quality of life have somewhat underestimated their impact. I generally think using a well-being approach helps to accurately judge the impact of these conditions, while schizophrenia and bipolar affective disorder are related to significantly reduced life expectancy, not due to suicide, mental illnesses rarely cause physical impairments or direct mortality. To take the matrix and use it in practice, zero equals death, one equals year at well-being baseline, for depression, based on my clinical experience. There's an image here, described as image alt text. It's slightly reassuring my guesses weren't too outrageous compared to the existing DALI weightings. I guess you have to trust one wasn't cheating, but also not so similar, it made all of this a completely pointless exercise. To be brief, rather than just looking at years lost or how unpleasant one judges an illness or impairment to be, a matrix allows an illness like depression to be considered more holistically. Health. Depression is an illness and results in lots of unpleasant symptoms, low mood, fatigue, disturbed sleep, distorted perceptions of the world, and intrusive, negative thoughts. It can also affect appetite and seems to compound the negative effects of other illnesses, for example post-MI, heart attack, depression. Autonomy. At the more severe end, people can find it difficult to function and make choices for themselves, they can end up in hospital. Security. Depression is a common reason for people to miss work, have difficulty getting back into work, that is risks financial security, and at the more severe end people can have difficulty caring for themselves, that is maintaining adequate food and fluid intake, accessing healthcare. It can also strain close relationships. Time. Depression causes fatigue and also leads to people being unable to enjoy activities they used to. It's common to withdraw from these pursuits and also from social interaction that is while the amount of time they have doesn't change, they will be unable to spend this in leisure pursuits or meaningful activity with more severe depression. Equality. With this being relatively common and discussed, it's unlikely milder forms of depression will result in inequality. Again, for the severe end, this could be stigmatizing for example if people cannot maintain self-care, lose status at home, work or end up in hospital. Despair. At the more severe end, depression can lead to suicidal thoughts and acts, so this should qualify for a catastrophic multiplier, currently arbitrary as not standardized across other conditions. That's the end of that list. For spillover effects, using a systems approach. Having a loved one suffering with depression is worrying, and this is more worrying the more unwell a loved one is. Similarly, 
the increasing loss of functioning because of more severe depression leaves others in the household taking on their responsibilities to keep the system functioning. A system approach allows for consideration of times where someone suffering with depression has particularly bad effects on other members of the household. If someone is the main income provider, one could imagine the threat to financial security is particularly acute for all household members. Similarly, for anyone with caring responsibilities, struggling to function will be particularly bad for those they care for. This tends to be the reasoning behind active screening for postnatal depression as this affects the care, bonding and emotional, social development of the infant when untreated. It is then highly cost-effective to treat postnatal depression, not just for the mother's well-being, but all the benefits this has for the infant. Outside of this specific example, parental mental health clearly has an impact on children, poverty of close relationship, threats to security, and it's therefore particularly important to address mental health needs of parents with young children for their well-being throughout life. Heading. Measuring interventions. It follows that effectively treating depression improves the well-being of the person suffering from depression and, to some degree, their household. If you then wanted to roll out a scheme for example a local program for people to access free cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, for depression, and wanted to judge how cost-effective this would be for well-being, I guess it would be along these lines. Firstly, you would need to know the cost of this scheme that is setting up the scheme, training people to deliver CBT, spaces, technology for people to have CBT. You then need to predict how many people could be seen in one year. Then you would need to know the prevalence of depression in the community, roughly, that is how many people this could potentially benefit in the longer term, as well as the average severity of depression in sufferers. For spillover effects, it might be helpful to know the prevalence in working age adults, parents, etc. With that information you know how many people could get the free CBT in a year, and multiply this by the well-being impact effect of the average severity of depression for example the service can see 1,000 people in a year. The average severity is moderate 0.6 well-being adjusted impact years, so therefore there are potentially 400 WAIYs you could get out of this intervention. Let's say 50% of people do recover completely with CBT, guess stolen from here, that gives you 200 WAIYs. Of the remaining 500 people, another 160 show a reliable improvement, that is they are still depressed but they are now mildly depressed vs severely. 160 people being mildly depressed, 0.88, vs moderately depressed, 0.6, gives you an additional 44.8 WAIYs, a total benefit for the intervention of 244.8 ways per year for the cost of providing CBT. You can similarly model spillover effects to work out the likely benefits to wider household members, community for example in reducing unemployment. That's the end of that list. Obviously, it's based on a lot of guesswork, so you'd want to collect more detailed information to understand the service when it's up and running that is then you could see how many people are accessing the service with different severities of depression, their recovery, improvement rates and then judge the true impact on WAIYs vs the estimate. You could then assign a cash value for what one WAIY is worth to see if this is greater than the costs, or have a minimum cost per WAIY hurdle that interventions have to meet in order to be considered worthy of public funding. You could compare this to other treatments for depression to see if this is the best use of money. One quick diversion to release the bee in my bonnet. I would discourage the assumption that psychotherapy does not result in harm and so there is no need to consider this in Sayers. 
Firstly, we do know that a fraction of people deteriorate during treatment, whether or not this is due to the therapy itself. It also seems like a logical fallacy to assume harm cannot occur. If talking to someone can improve one's mental health, it makes sense that talking to someone can worsen one's mental health. Again there are clear examples of this. It used to be commonplace to offer debriefing sessions following a traumatic event, it has since been demonstrated this is, at best, unhelpful, and at worst increases the risk of PTSD. It is clinically accepted that therapy can destabilize. People that is talking about painful memories can make people feel worse before they feel better, and so if people are in crisis, therapy is contraindicated without a robust safety net, which may not be available in resource-poor settings. Similarly, assuming it is universally helpful is an error. Some people do not want therapy, some will not be able to reliably attend due to work or family commitments and the rates of non-improvement, deterioration, and dropout before the minimum number of effective sessions needs to be included. Usually there are guardrails around therapy's harms, because if therapy is having a non- or adverse effect, people will drop out. However, this makes evaluating risks difficult because those who drop out of therapy do not complete outcome measures. This is also the risk of using the wrong form or modality of therapy especially if providing this as the only treatment option in resource-poor settings for example if you provide a therapy only suited for mild depression, you can imagine that people actually suffering more from another illness or more severe depression will get worse or not improve while still trying to engage as there's nothing else. If adopting a task-shifted approach, that is you ask non-clinicians to deliver therapy, you have to factor in adequate support for the person expected to take on these therapeutic relationships, and in some populations you can imagine they will encounter a much higher burden of patients who have had traumatic experiences than what is captured in RCTs in other settings. It may directly harm those delivering the therapy to put them in that position, and similarly a lack of support. Supervision can lead to even trained therapists straying into counter-therapeutic territory to harm those accessing it. If a therapy group collapses because it can't be managed safely by a non-clinician, this will likely make everyone in the group worse. And then what? But, back on topic, for a fairer CEA, you would need to factor in the service being underfilled. For example if the country was completely opposed to CBT on principle, or your scheme was completely impractical in its implementation. You would also need to collect data on how many people dropped out, assuming no effect in the remaining people otherwise unaccounted for, and who got worse. Here's a list of bullet points. Again, stealing data from the above paper, 6% of people got worse, let's say they become severely depressed, 0.2, vs moderate, 0.6. Minus 24 WAIYs, for a net total of 220.8 WAIYs. To be fair, you should also compare this against the alternative, that is what is the likely outcome of these 1,000 people not having free CBT in terms of rates of spontaneous recovery. Adjusted for time spent sick vs time to recovery improvement with CBT, and deterioration which might produce an even stronger argument for the CEA of the intervention if you show, without the service, we expect X number of people to get worse. That's the end of that list. However, this essentially works best when I can gauge the acceptability, uptake and benefit of my intervention with reasonable reliability. If I was thinking about providing CBT to an LMIC setting, I would have to proceed with more caution given the issues. I raised with RCTs in judging whether CBT is similarly helpful as an intervention in an LMIC, and my lack of lived experience within an LMIC. 
The greater issue, though, is me stating that for this amount of money, this intervention for depression is the best way to improve your population of LMICs, well-being. It's based on my assumptions about well-being from my perspective, and in the name of subjectivity, I could be completely wrong. I could try and support locally run research to collect more data to be sure of my assumptions, or impose an external RCT and accept it could be misleading. However, this doesn't really address the fact that I've decided treating depression is the best use of funding in the first place, which means I've not only made assumptions about depression's effect on well-being, but also every other problem that community might be facing that is I've done a comparison WAIY's estimate for different issues, compounding my assumptions. I've already admitted that the existing research into well-being is in its early days, and heavily weighted by wealthy countries with different cultures and so it might not be that helpful in considering something like CBT in an LMIC. Unless I decide well-being isn't that important to consider and it's worth waiting, likely, decades for this research to come to fruition, it is always going to involve a certain amount of guesswork. However, it also seems to me that the focus on subjective well-being can allow for more direct measures via trade-offs. I could, as an example, go to a community I think might benefit from my free CBT scheme, screen people for depression and find some eligible participants. I could explain CBT and all of its benefits and that I think they are depressed and this could help them. 50% chance of recovery. 66% chance of improvement. I could then offer the CBT or the equivalent cash value sum of providing the therapy. If no one chooses the CBT, it suggests it's not worth the money to the people I'm trying to help. I could even return in a couple of months, find these people, Screen them again and offer the money versus money plus CBT if I want an even better idea of how to judge my interventions. Subjective benefits. This is at least an upfront approach which avoids coercing people into CBT and provides quite an honest CEA. That is am I better off just taking the money I would have spent on therapy and giving it directly to this community if I want to do what they would find most helpful? Or should I be considering a way of providing access to those that want CBT? but factoring the costs for people to attend if I want to make this work. For example if they can't spare the time away from work or family commitments without financial compensation, but would benefit from CBT, should I be offering compensation in childcare? Either way, there has to be some way of involving local communities, and allowing them to provide feedback if there is going to be any argument for sayers in directly improving subjective well-being. Heading what would I be suggesting as research areas for maximal gains in well-being from my biased perspective? I thought from my biased, blinkered UK psychiatry perspective on what I would be thinking were potential areas for funding, which would have the greatest impact on well-being from my assumptions. While my framework has been informed by subjective well-being approaches, the overall matrix is an objective overview of subjective well-being. These are things I think generally would have great effects, potentially globally with the caveat that I wouldn't suggest these are priorities in LMIC specifically. This must involve local involvement and a great deal more research. Generally addressing the global mental health gap is unlikely to be low impact, provided it's done thoughtfully with involvement of the communities affected. Dot. If I had to pick my top three. Heading. Psychosis or schizophrenia research. While there are arguments for mental illnesses having a strong societal context, Schizophrenia is relatively consistently prevalent around the globe, 1%. This is a very disabling illness, particularly for people who have negative symptoms which is common in chronic forms of schizophrenia, and acute episodes, psychotic episodes, are highly distressing for people to experience.
the current treatments are various shades of problematic, either due to Parkinson's-type side effects, or due to metabolic side effects for example resulting in obesity, diabetes, heart disease. It tends to first present when people are young, that is late teens early 20s, and therefore can affect people in work or higher education, or those with dependent children, thinking of spillover and autonomy. It has a variable life course, some have one episode of psychosis and get better, some have a relapsing or remitting illness, and others have a progressively disabling course. Some people will have treatment-resistant schizophrenia that is it does not respond to multiple trials of antipsychotics, and therefore are eligible for clozapine, another antipsychotic which works better than others, but has a risk of serious complications and so requires intensive monitoring of blood tests and heart health. A good proportion, 60%, respond, but others do not. Schizophrenia remains highly stigmatized as an illness, reduces life expectancy, and can lead to protracted hospital admissions. Generally, it feels we are barely scratching the surface of understanding this illness properly and are sorely in need for better treatments. Regardless, it's important to ensure timely treatment if someone does become unwell as the duration of untreated psychosis is a significant factor for how well and how quickly someone recovers, and to support them in returning to their usual activities. There's ongoing research about earlier use of clozapine for this reason, that is not waiting for two treatments to fail, or genetic testing for antipsychotic response, and other ways to make antipsychotic, clozapine treatment less invasive for example finger prick blood monitoring. CBT for psychosis is relatively new and has some very good well-being oriented results, as does family-based therapy. This is a high-impact area where research and advances in treatment could be high yield. Heading. Interventions aimed at women of childbearing age to empower control over pregnancy, and generally any intervention to benefit young children. I don't want to risk oversimplifying a very fraught topic. But this UK-based charity has a lot of information to help understand the issues women face in trying to break the cycle, if they have children removed from their care, often due to being in a violent relationship, or mental health, substance misuse problems. I would endorse any supportive measures for safely escaping domestic violence, etc., or proactively engaging vulnerable women, or those at risk of exploitation in discussions about long-acting reversible contraception if desired. While children's mental health services are important, I personally find it hard to reconcile children who are born into very difficult situations receiving support for their mental health, which is not really addressing the reasons they may be suffering, or interventions from social care, but this drops away after they turn 18 and they go on to have children themselves. I feel this leads to an odd disconnect between support for children in bad homes but seeming indifference or derision towards parents, mothers who are unable to provide a supportive environment. Based on what I've said about spillover effects, it seems these problems should be addressed in tandem. Women should have a supportive environment where they are more able to exercise control over pregnancy and choice of partner, and difficulties the parents face need to garner the same amount of support, regardless of the effects on the child, to ensure children are in an environment to promote their well-being in the long term. Heading. Psychedelics in palliative care. Alright, I don't really see this as a key priority, but it's something I surprised myself with. To keep it short, I've been highly skeptical about psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, I am keeping an open mind, but so far the research I've come across has been unconvincing, you can't blind any trials, recruitment is often targeted to people curious of believing in psychedelics, and I still remember the hype about microdosing, which has since been debunked. For what it's worth, I'm pro-legalization for the sake of these drugs not being as harmful as alcohol, I just dislike the medicalization route. 
it ends up leading to a politicization of medicine, for example medical cannabis being recommended for a range of problems with absolutely no basis in evidence, which completely taints any discussion about harms or benefits. I also generally think the impact of psychedelic psychotherapy is fairly minor and likely costly. The proposed application of psychedelics requires controlled administration that is in a clinical environment, alongside relatively intensive psychotherapy which makes it likely to favor relatively wealthy people, not in crisis, with jobs which will allow them to work around these sessions. Obviously in certain groups situations it could be very useful that is survivor's guilt in PTSD. But the research isn't quite there yet, in my entirely personal opinion. However, in my trawl through all the well-being research and evaluating my framework, I did come across a couple of tangentially related studies about the effects of psychedelics in promoting positive attitudes to death, and reducing existential fear, that is despair. With even a one-off dose of LSD having relatively enduring effects. It makes sense to me to consider the use of psychedelics for people with life-limiting illnesses, for example in palliative care, or perhaps in the elderly more conservatively. Palliative care is set up to be more holistic and spiritual, and opening conversations about death is very much their strength, I'd argue much more appropriately than thinking of this in psychotherapy. Reducing fears, anxieties, and existential dread could have significant gains in palliative care and may reduce the use of opiates and other drugs which negatively affect well-being outside of limiting pain that is they are sedating, cause constipation, and interfere with enjoyment of life. Pain is highly related to anxiety, one of the first surgical anesthetics used was Valium, and it's not uncommon for people to feel physical pain as a result of psychological distress. Tension headache is the classic example, so it wouldn't seem too far-fetched to imagine psychedelics could have a hugely beneficial effect on well-being in this context. Heading. Final thoughts. Thank you to anyone who has spent time reading my earnest, but likely misinformed, approach to well-being as it relates to mental health. I'd be interested to know how far I've strayed off track, or if there is any weight to my general argument. Having an evaluative framework based on subjective concepts of well-being, allowing synthesis of existing research and providing the skeleton for these cross-comparisons, is useful. I think the end result, producing something which could be considered a tweak of the DALI to better reflect subjective concepts of well-being, is a little easier to adopt and understand than creating something completely new. References linked in line as this is long enough. Sorry my word tables have formatted quite badly. This article was narrated by Type 3 Audio for the Effective Altruism Forum. It was first published on July 30, 2023. To report an issue or give feedback on this narration, go to t3a.is.